Good morning, church. What a lovely morning it is. Such good news. I'm reading this morning from Matthew chapter 20, verses 16 to the end to verse 20. This is happening just after Jesus has been resurrected and appeared to his disciples. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks, Simone. And Simone's right. It's a morning of good news. And to capture how I feel about it, I'd have to refer you back to Jess's comments when she was singing this morning. And she went, oh, it's so great to hear you sing. Because it really is. It's wonderful to be together again and to share church with one another. Because I know this is important to us or we probably wouldn't do it. I mean, to get yourself in this room, some of you have got kids to get organized uh, and drop off in places they need to be. Some of you have lawns that look like mine because the rain was crazy and there was some, a break in that this morning, but you're not mowing it, you're here. Uh, some of you had a fight on the way to church this morning. It's all right, you'll, you'll sort it out. You'll be gracious to one another and that can be a challenge as well. So brave faces for now. Um, there are all kinds of things that we sort of overcome to get into church or to be watching online at home, but we are God's people who are gathered together. And so I'm going to ask us to do something just a little bit weird. I want to make you famous for a moment. I want to ask everyone if you would stand. This is a favor to you. It helps you like stretch your legs, stay awake during a talk. And turn around and face these cameras because we are a diverse community trying our best to gather as we can. And on our third week back, uh, some can't be here yet. I wonder if this congregation here would just give a shout out, a clap and a cheer for the congregation who are meeting at home as well. Thank you for doing that. You can have a seat. And those of you at home, you can clap too for these guys, even though we can't hear you. Um, But it's important for us to take a step like that. It's important for us to understand that whilst the New Testament has called us to be a unified people, there's not a call for uniformity. We're different, right? You're not the same as me. There's a way that I speak that you might resonate with, and there's a way, or you might not, but you put up with me. Uh, We're different sorts of people. We have different needs, different challenges. Uh, Some are able to be here. Some are not able to be here just now. But we recognize that it's important for us to gather as God's church and be God's church together. We recognize that the New Testament calls us to unity, but life means that we're not uniform. We're different. So what can we do to make sure that in Christ we are a people together? How are we going to achieve the unity that is in Jesus whilst not becoming some kind of uniform cult? One of the ways we've done this and has been our practice is to talk about who we want to be together. Annually, we've gathered at this time of year to take some time and say, look, who has God called us to be? If this church, Victory Anglican, is a healthy church, 
what's it going to look like? What do we think God wants it to be? What's my part to play? And how do I play that part? This series, as Joe introduced to us, is an important one in the life of our church together. It's called The Fig Tree in Bloom because it's about understanding what this church, conveniently called Fig Tree Anglican, might look like when it's blooming and healthy. And hopefully most of this, if you've been here for a little while, is revision rather than new. But it's worth taking our time as a different sort of people in different rooms to understand who has God called us to be together. And so over the next four weeks, we want to think about things like our fruits. What's God called us to do? What's he trying to produce here through us? We want to think about a fig tree in bloom stature. What does it look like? What's it growing up to be? What do we see when we imagine this fig tree in bloom? We want to talk about the roots. How will it function? If it's going to be this kind of thing we see, and if it's going to produce this fruit, how? And we want to talk about the harvest that God wants to bring about through his fig tree, through his church when it blooms. This morning I want to talk to you about fruit. I want to talk to you about the church that God called us to be and the, the things that God has called us to do. What is God producing through saving you from hell for heaven and saving me from hell for heaven and now bringing us together as his people. What's he wanting to do? To do it, I want to take you into a passage of scripture that I suspect you know really, really well. Uh, and Simone just read it for us. It's Matthew 28, known as the Great Commission. To take you into Matthew, I need to share with you a little bit about, of my thinking that hopefully is familiar with you about how language can work. There are some conventions in language that help us anticipate what comes next. Here's what I mean. If I was to say to you, hip hip, you would say, great, we're on the same page. Some of you get poetry. I'm not some of you. I don't get poetry unless it rhymes. So my favourite kind of poetry is a limerick. You know limericks, you get the first two lines rhyme, then you do a little rhyme in the middle and then you rhyme at the end. And you always got to be careful if the first person in it is an old man from Nantucket. Because it could go somewhere bad. Well this is like a limerick or like a hip hip hooray. See, as I read through Matthew 28, 16 to 20, well-known passage of scripture, I couldn't help but notice a bit of a hip-hip and a hooray going on. Now, people who are really into how language works, they call this a chiasm. I'll show you a diagram of this on the screen. Now, whether this is a chiasm or not is not super important, but I certainly want to point out to you that there is certainly a hip-hip and a hooray. There certainly is a correspondence, just like the old man from Blackheath who sat on his pair of false teeth, there is something that corresponds with the other line. There's a reflection going on as Matthew tells this story about Jesus. And what's really great about this, this helped me get this talk down from 13 points to three. So we're all winners this morning. I want to talk to you as we understand what God wants to do with us, the fruit that he wants to find in this healthy fig tree in bloom. I want to talk to you about creating community. I want to talk to you about showing God. And I want to talk to you about Jesus at the center. You ready? 
Oh, that's one of those hip, hip, hooray things. When I go, you ready? You go. Excellent. Okay, we're doing well together. Let's try this out. Creating community as Matthew speaks about it. Now, have you ever thought, why do we have four Gospels? I don't know why we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I know that they're written with one person as the star. It's always Jesus, but did you know they're written for different purposes? So Mark, as he writes, he's kind of your old school news guy. No opinions, just facts. Mark wants you to know the good news, that's the headline, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's the facts, folks. Do what you will with it. That's Mark's gospel. John writes, maybe a little more persuasively, John, he articulates his purpose in writing. He says, I've recorded all these signs and I couldn't fit them all because there's not enough papyri in the world for it. But what I have given you, I've written, why? That you might believe Jesus is the Christ. That's his purpose for writing. As Luke writes his gospel that he addresses to Theophilus, which may be his, uh, his sponsor, or maybe it's a metaphor for all of those who are Theophili, that is beloved of God. Luke writes, in order that you might have certainty of the things that you've believed. So you see how all these guys have got a purpose. Same or similar story, same star, different reason for writing. Why does Matthew write? He's not as clear with a purpose statement But I'm persuaded by the scholars who say Matthew writes a document, a gospel, to build community. What kind of community? I think Matthew writes a gospel to help Jewish Christians, Jewish receivers of the Christ, understand the place of the Gentile Christian within the people of God. You see, once upon a time, Jews were very separate from Gentiles. Matthew writes a gospel to help Jewish Christians reconcile and understand the place of Gentile Christians within the one people of God in this new community called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It just might be why Matthew opened his gospel with a genealogy full of Jewish names and a smattering of inconvenient Gentiles. It might be why Matthew writes his gospel starting off with the Jewish Messiah who comes and the Jewish king and all of Jerusalem, well, they shudder and tremble at his coming, but the Gentile Magi turn up and they worship. Matthew from the get-go is trying to explain to everybody, this is a new kingdom that's being formed. This is a new community, a new people, and this is how you live together. So here we come to Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. And it's an amazing scene as Matthew is going to teach us about the new community that Jesus has formed. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16, where we read, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now there's a few details here that are worth your noting. Uh, There are eleven disciples, that's awkward. Wouldn't it have been easier, Matthew, just to say, the disciples? You're trying to rub someone's nose in it? We started with twelve. You documented that earlier, now you're telling us eleven are there. I think Matthew might be trying to remind us that not everybody made it. This was a journey. Not everyone's there. Interesting. Then he says, they came to the mount that they went to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had told them to go. Now Simone rightly pointed out this has happened after Jesus' resurrection. 
Now, one of the things to note, Jesus was resurrected in Jerusalem. Now we find ourselves over 100 kilometers away in Galilee. There are three really important mountains in Matthew's gospel that are worth your knowledge. Uh, There is Mount Hermon in the extreme north near Caesarea Philippi. It's actually over the border in uh, Syria, if you go there today. It's a very tall mountain, snow on the top, and described just as Matthew does as the very high mountain on which Jesus was transfigured in the north. In Galilee, there's another mountain. We're looking at it, Mount Tabor. This is where Jesus has gathered many people before Matthew records it for his Sermon on the Mounts, where he taught. There's another mountain, This is the Mount of Olives. This is in the south. It just occurred to me, I think I moved north. Doesn't matter, you know what I'm trying to do. In the south, in Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, this is where Jesus, as Luke records, not Matthew, but Luke records, Jesus will ascend to heaven from. This is also the mountain where Jesus will speak in apocalyptic language about his death and resurrection. Three significant mountains. We are back here in the middle at Tabor. Why is that important? Well, you see, Jesus gathered the people at this mountain one time and preached his Sermon on the Mount, which was an exposition on the Ten Commandments, first read by Moses. So 11 are there at the mountain of the Ten Commandments sermon, And why am I telling you this? Because there's a bit of a critical echo that I want you to pick up on. When we read the New Testament, it's worth listening out for some echoes of the Old Testament that come through. What we are seeing at this point, if I've got this correctly, is an echo of what Moses once did. When Moses once gathered the people at Mount Sinai and then gathered them again after their journey through the desert where not everybody made it, for a second reading of the law in Deuteronomy and prepared them as a new community in a new land. Here, the one promised in Deuteronomy 18 as the great prophet like Moses is echoing what has happened before. Once again, he has gathered the covenant people, these 11 disciples, those who have remained faithful, he's gathered them together and in the place where he once read them and taught them the law, he is again speaking to them. All right, are you ready for the hip hip? Are you ready for the hooray to my hip hip? If verse 16 is a hip hip, then verse 20 comes out with a hooray because when Jesus gathers them in this echo of what happened in Moses' ministry at the mountain and speaks to them like the new, like the new Moses, what does he do? Well, like a, like a hooray to the hip hip, he teaches them to obey everything he has commanded. Do you see what's going on here? This is once again God's leader calling God's people together and giving them the command of God and calling them to obedience. This is the new covenant moment. This is the new Moses. This is the new gathering. This is preparing people for the community that God wants them to be under Jesus. And there's a couple of things that we should tidy up about our thoughts on what's happening here in the Great Commission. One of the things worth tidying up is this is not the end. Because this is the last bit in Matthew's gospel, we assume he's talking sometimes about the same stuff Luke is talking about. 
But hopefully I've shown you already, you're on the wrong mountain if you think Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives. That's what Luke talks about. This is not Luke's story. This is Matthew's story. Rewind. That's going to happen in the future. This is not a closing chapter. This is actually an opening chapter. This is not the end. This is Jesus not ascending. This is not as you sometimes hear it taught and the very last thing Jesus said before he went to heaven. And no, it's not. There'll be more. Read Luke. Also, you might hear, and the very last thing Jesus did before he went to heaven was gave this command. And I've always thought that until I read more carefully. The last thing Jesus does in Matthew's gospel is offer a word of promise. I'll be with you to the end of the age. So often we think Matthew closes his book with, and yeah, Jesus said, go and do this thing. Now the last thing Jesus said was, I'll be with you. Here's my point. What we are having here as Matthew closes his gospel is not a closing moment, but an opening moment for a new community. This is Jesus saying, this is how I'm going to be with you. This is how life's going to be as we continue. You are my people who have remained faithful, you 11. Here is my command to you. And just like Yahweh was with his people in the promised land, so I will be with you. You who have put your faith in me, Jew or Gentile, I will be with you. Now here's something that has helped me as I've reflected upon this week, and I hope it will help you as almost like a, a paradigm thought for how you think about the Ten Commandments. Because sometimes we think about the Ten Commandments as almost like the test. If you can do those, you get to be in God's family. But that's mistaken thinking. I want you to see when Moses first spoke to the people of God at Sinai and when Jesus spoke to people at Mount Tabor, I want you to imagine this as a locker room talk. You're like, I never played football. What on earth's a locker room talk? Relax, I've played three games of football in my life. It's not hard to figure out. They're football players, for crying out loud. It's not complicated. Well, I've got two in my family. It doesn't matter what kind of ball it is, it's all football. So, in the game of football that I did play, here's how it worked. I was already on the team. I was already in the shed. I already had my jersey. I was already part of the team. Before we took the field, the coach came into the dressing room, the locker room, whatever you want to call it, and he said, right boys, you're a team. Here's how we're going to play. See, Moses gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, right? What comes before Exodus 20? Real simple question. Exodus 19. That, friends, is a more college education. <laughs> and in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God says, though the whole earth is mine, you'll be my treasured possession. In, in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God picks his team. And by his grace, he's chosen these people, these descendants of Jacob, to be his team. I choose you. Here's your jersey, here's your jersey, here's your jersey, here's your jersey. Come into the dressing room, you're on my team. 
Right, boys, we're about to run onto this field called the land of Canaan. You're going to be my team. Here's how I want you to play. The Ten Commandments never got anyone into God's family. The Ten Commandments was the grace of God to show how to play. And here is the lesson. When Jesus is calling these people together at this mountain, he's saying, you're my people. We're going to do life together. We're going to be a new community. And it's a community of grace as it's always been with God. Because how do you get to be one of God's people? You get called. God called them and he said, though the whole earth is mine, I've chosen you. Brothers and sisters, I depart from my notes for a minute and say, please stop sweating about the doctrine of God calling people. Why didn't he call them? Why didn't he call them? And start getting more grateful about just saying, thank you, God, for calling me. I've had it up to here with Christians saying, why didn't God call them? Why didn't God them? As if we all have a right to be called. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. So when you contemplate that you were once dead in sin and transgression, and a gracious God made you alive in Christ and called you to himself, would you please, though it's hard to understand, but would you please... Stop assuming everyone has a right to salvation and start praising a gracious God who chose you though you did not deserve it. That is why we call it grace. For Israel, for the Christian today, this gathering shows the grace of God. The law of God was not a hardship God brought, but wisdom God brought. I called you because of my grace. I lead you because of my grace. And I'll be with you because of my grace. God is gracious and kind at every step of forming this community. For Israel, it was a locker room talk. For Jesus, it was a locker room talk. You're my people. You're my peeps. You're my community. This is how we're going to do it. So what's he commanding them to? What is Jesus' command that he's saying? Well, he's saying, I want to form this community of grace. I want you to be a part of it. What shall we do there? What's your command? Well, the next part is, I want you to show God. Have a look at verse 17. So they come. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I don't know where you go to on this. If I confess my dark side, there's a part of that goes, really, you doubted? He's standing right in front of you. What's wrong with you people? Am I alone? Is there anyone else who is like, come on. Well, then you, like I, suffer from a bit of chronological arrogance. These, uh, that's all right, you, like I, These people haven't lived 2,000 years of church history with the church on every corner, grown up in uh, allegedly Christian country, seen a Pentecost and all these different things. They've seen a guy who's been doing ministry for three years who has yet to fail on any of his promises and you can imagine why they're still a little bit shaky, some of them. But it's a beautiful snapshot into how people might respond to Jesus. Some worshipped, 
and some doubted. If at that time, standing in front of Jesus, some worshipped and some doubted, is it fair to say that in our experience, some might worship, some might doubt, and some might flat out reject? I hope that's a fair assumption based on their reaction that in our experience we might find some worship, some doubt, and some might flat out reject. So what's the hip hip, what's the hooray to the hip hip? Well, Jesus said, well, Matthew says, look, some worship, some doubted. But if we flip to the hooray side of this next verse, thanks, Philip, verse 19, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus say? He says, as part of a gracious community, show each other God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Show each other God. Whether someone worships, whether someone doubts, whether someone rejects, show them God. Now, there's a few things we want to clear up on this, uh, this little verse here. Firstly, Jesus doesn't send anyone anywhere. If I say to my kids, go and do your homework, what am, I most, what am I most enthusiastic about? Their location or the doing of the homework? Probably the location, because they're bugging me. No, no, that's, that's not true. Do the homework. In the same way, this passage, the main emphasis, the command of Jesus is make disciples. Now, one of the tricky things that can happen is sometimes we think the main command is go somewhere. And you're like, yeah, I didn't. I guess that's it for me. Won't be doing that. I tripped on the first hurdle. Or they're the heroes, the ones who went. And you know what? They are. They're great. There are other parts of the scripture that talk. This part of the scripture is not actually sending you anywhere. It's speaking like go and do your homework is I need you to position yourself for homework doing. See, this isn't as simple as, well, I didn't go, so I guess it's over. No, this is wherever you go, whatever you do, you need to be positioned for disciple making. How do I make disciples? What is disciple making? What's discipleship? Now, here's another thing that gets confused. Sometimes we think discipleship, that's where we get into our Bibles. Preacher says chiasm or some weird nerd word like that. And we read commentaries and we work out whether we stand with John Calvin on this or John Piper on that or, you know, all this sort of stuff for Christians. So that's discipleship over here. And then sometimes we think there's another kind of thing we do called evangelism over here. This is where we find people who don't know Jesus and we tell them about Jesus. And the two are different things, but that's not actually true. It's all discipleship. Because what is discipleship? It's showing God. If they worship God, like you, show them more. If they have doubt, show them God. If they reject or don't know, show them God. It's all discipleship. It's all one part of the same command that Jesus has given us to show God. And he might go, yeah, but look, I'm not a minister, so I can't do that baptizing stuff like with the water. That's not what's going on here. Uh, one of the biggest gifts to this country in theology is the former principal of Moore College, who pretty much influenced just about every Bible teacher we've ever had, a guy called Broughton Knox. And he points to this part and says, don't be confused 
when Matthew records Jesus talking about baptizing, he's not talking about a church ceremony. He's not talking about water sports at this stage. In fact, the water stuff reflects what he is actually talking about. To baptize is to immerse, to dip, to drown, to overwhelm. Hence, Jesus can speak of going to the cross as a baptism he has to undergo. We speak of a baptism of fire. What Jesus says here is, you are going to be in a world where people will doubt where people will worship and you'll find people will reject. What I want you to go and do, immerse them in the knowledge of God. Find them where they're at and show them God. If they're in your church, show them God. If they're not in your church, show them God. Wherever you go, whatever you do, go make, position yourself to be someone who shows everybody God. Why? Because what's a disciple? A disciple is an imitating follower. To be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to see him. And so Jesus' command in this space, hey, gracious community that I'm building, be people who show everybody God. Immerse them in him. Immerse them in his word. Immerse them in the good deeds he's called you to do. Show them God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whether they're Jew or Gentile, all nations, let grace abound. And finally, Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus marks himself at the center of this community, at the center of culture. Jesus says, I'm building a gracious community I called it, I lead it, and I'm with it. I want it to show God to everybody, baptizing them in the knowledge of God, and that the center of everything you do is me. Because when you say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that's a fairly significant claim. I mean, underline the words that are significant. All, that's a big word. Heaven and earth, so every realm, me, not anyone else, just Jesus. And so Jesus says, amidst all of this, it's all about me. I'm at the center. Now you might say to me, well, of course, it's a Christian church. But it's easy for good things to contend for the center and to nudge Jesus out of the way. Sometimes we think... We want to be a church that really influences our society, our broader community. That's a good thing. Let's do everything to get there. No, let's not. Jesus at the center, not broader influence. May broader influence come, but Jesus at the center. Sometimes we think our pastor is amazing. Like, man, Robin Kinstead. Whoa, yeah, he's a martial artist. You've been warned. Uh, Wow, I want to be just like him. Robin Kinstead wants you to be just like Jesus. Jesus in the center. It's not a personality cult, but that can happen in churches. Sometimes we think about, you know what's really important for us? We want to be an inclusive church. We want to be the church who's inclusive. I don't. 
well, not at the center. I want Jesus at the center. And if you don't receive Jesus, you'll never truly be in his church. You might gather under his roof, but you'll never be included in his church. Because inclusion, good as it might be, is not at the center. Jesus is at the center. Sometimes churches have uh, done really, tried to be helpful, maybe put Jesus' softer mother at the center of the church. Mary doesn't want to be at the center of the church. Others have strived to place the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, at the center of the church. The Holy Spirit wants to point to Jesus. That's his greatest delight. And so Jesus is at the center of the church. If you're wondering, that's why we call ourselves an evangelical church. It doesn't mean we do evangelism, that's a part of it, but it means Jesus is at the center. We declared it. We declared it. Jesus at the center. So where do we go from here? What's the fruits of this fig tree in bloom? Well, it was written some years ago, and it comes directly out of these words. It's on the screen for you. To build a community of grace committed to making disciples of Jesus. Just the way Jesus taught it. Be gracious. I've called you here. Grace formed this community. It's not a lawless community. It's a condemnationless community. So hear my word. Obey my word. My grace to you is to give you my word. And it's a community I dwell in. I'm with you. What should you do together amongst the many, many things you could do? First and foremost, show people God. How will I do that? Place Jesus at the center. Jesus at the center of all you do, all you say, and all you show. A community of grace committed to making disciples of Jesus. So what do we do with that? Keep doing what you're doing, friends. Keep pressing in. In each season, treat one another graciously. Gather the community. Be open to others. Make disciples. Show Jesus to one another. Call him at the center. In all things, push other things out. Jesus at the center. That's our long-term commitment to what we do as God's people together. A shorter-term commitment that we've shared together over various years is to equip our community to continue to be a gracious community committed to making disciples of Jesus. And a way that we have been able to do that is through an annual gift. I want you to have a look at the screen now because with much prayer and contribution from, from you, we've thought about some ways that we might be able to continue to equip our church with resources to be a community of grace committed to making disciples of Jesus. And so I hope that as you have a look at these ideas, something might stir in you as a space that we might contribute to the mission and the fruit that God has called us to bear. Please watch the screen. annual practice at Fig Tree Anglican as we celebrate our mission and our vision has been gift day. 
And so we're thankful to everyone who participated in this year's gift day with so many great ideas. Great ideas, some of which we'll present to you now, some of which may not be a part of this year's gift day, but I wanna thank everyone for submitting them because they have shaped the way we think about future budgets and shaped the way we think about longer term projects as well. So nothing's been wasted and it's absolutely wonderful to hear the heartbeat and the thoughts and the ideas of a gracious community committed to making disciples of Jesus. So what are we looking at for gift day 2021? Fig Tree Street Entrance. Fig Tree Anglican Church is a church that desires to be known as having its doors open to the community. Whilst that may be a reality in practice, our streetscape is limited in providing the public with an indication of the great things that lie beyond our driveway. This gift day project seeks to overcome this by creating a new street front entrance to Fig Tree Anglican Church. It includes a new lower profile fence featuring a double gate that can be left open during the day, decorative path leading from the street to a new office entry, upgrading current paving with large format paving, and landscape gardens inclusive of an irrigation system. It also allows for a new Fig Tree Anglican Church sign, including the potential for the installation of interactive digital signage. The streetscape beautification project would send a clear signal that Fig Tree Anglican Church is a church that is open to the community, that they are welcome to come in and find out more about the good news of the gospel. Ignite. Our youth and young adults community has continued to absorb much of the impact of COVID throughout 2020 and 21. It is also a community that has stepped up and served our church in many remarkable and sacrificial ways during this time. Ignite is the annual week-long camp for our youth and young adults. Held in January, it is a critical launch pad for the year whilst also a wonderful opportunity to present the life-transforming message of the gospel. Traditionally, fundraising activities are held over the 12 months leading up to Ignite to help subsidise the cost of camp for many who otherwise would not be able to go. COVID, and in particular the lengthy lockdown that has dominated the past four to five months, has prevented this from happening this year. This 2021 Gift Day project seeks to raise $10,000 to both help subsidise the cost of camp for individuals and to also offset the additional costs of holding Ignite brought about by COVID. Compassion Thailand Projects Compassion is a Christian organisation that works to lift children out of poverty in developing world countries. Fig Tree Anglican Church already has a strong connection to Compassion with many of our church members sponsoring children in Thailand. This gift day project aims to bless four compassion projects in the north of Thailand, near the border with Myanmar. Refugees from Myanmar are flooding into this part of Thailand and combined with COVID, which is devastating many poverty-stricken communities in this region, it has created an increasingly desperate social, health and economic environment. Four Compassion Projects and Churches would each receive $3,000 from our gift day giving to be used to help address a determined, urgent need specific to that project or church. 
your giving would be a frontline church partner gift, which means that 100% of your money goes directly to the project. Over the next three to four weeks, it would be wonderful if you would prayerfully consider how these projects align with the vision, mission and strategy of Fig Tree Anglican Church and ask God if he has equipped you and called you to release resources to make these projects possible as part of Gift Day 2021.